The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Red Bull is dominating F1, but what does struggling Mercedes and Ferrari need to do to catch up? And why is the RB19 so fast with the DRS Open? We'll answer these questions and many more. Now we've got two races in the record books of the 2023 Formula 1 season, we're delighted to be back with another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. It's fair to say we're starting to get a good grasp of where everyone stands in F1 this year with the luxury of two circuits worth of data, so that gives us plenty to talk about today. I'm Ed Straw, but far more significantly, I'm joined by Gary Anderson, a veteran of half a century in F1, a man who has been responsible for Grand Prix winning machinery and worked with some of the biggest names in motorsport in his career. How are you enjoying 2023 so far, Gary? Yeah, it's been good. Um, it's an interesting season because obviously, you know, we've got to see Ferrari and, and Mercedes pick, the, pick up their performance to, to make it competitive. But that's the challenge, you know, that, that's what I look at as the challenge for any team is to recognise where you are and then try to go forward. I say I'm, I'm sort of disappointed Mercedes had the blinkers on whenever they designed a new car because last year I think the writing was on the wall and they didn't really sort of step forward. Um, and Ferrari sort of stood still as well, really. So, you know, Red Bull have definitely got the, the, up, the upper handle at this point in time. But the biggest thing is anybody, you know, being competitive is only about being rel- competitive relative to your, your other teams. And what we're seeing is Mercedes and Ferrari haven't improved. Um, so, you know, Red Bull have improved a little bit, but maybe not as much as it looks on face value right yet. So let's see. Um, it's down to Ferrari and, and Mercedes to, to build a better car. And, you know, if Aston, if Aston Martin can do it, um, then so can they. So they, they just got to get on with the job. Yeah, absolutely. And we should mention both Ferrari and Mercedes, they hit their targets. It's just their targets for performance weren't high enough. We'll get into that properly later on in the podcast. But first, we'll start off with the floor open for your topic of choice. So what's got you going technically from the world of F1 of late, Gary? Well, it's just this talk about straight line speed and DRS, I think, is one of the interesting things. Um, Step one is I'm no fan of DRS by any means. I like to see racing being racing. Um, You know, if you look at a go-kart race, for example, you don't have any hope for DRS. You have to, you know, you have to drive. You have to learn your craft about racing and passing uh, from day one just by doing it. So I'm no fan of DRS. I wish it was taken away and we'd do some races without it just to see if we could breed drivers that would actually get on with racing and and so on. Now, whenever we look at it um, in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, the Red Bulls using the DRS was, was 30-odd kilometres, 33, 34 kilometres faster and the Mercedes without DRS. A normal step that we've seen in the past with the rear wing opening uh, would normally be, you know, 15, 18, maybe 20 k's at a push. Because obviously if you're behind another car, you're, you're getting a two as well. So normally if you're behind another car, you would be two, three, maybe five kilometers faster than you would be normally if you, if you had no DRS. So you've got a bit of a tool there anyway. But obviously the Red Bull step is massive and it does mean that uh, overtaking is a bit easier for them than it is for some of the other people in the DRS. But that's, you know, DRS is part of Formula One at this point in time. So it's part of the engineering challenge to make it work for you. And if you isolate it into a rear wing, for example, and just have the, the rear wing flap opening, you will gain, as I say, you'll gain that 15 to 20 Ks depending upon the car and depending upon the car you're following because of that too. 
Now, we know the Mercedes is a is a car that's, that runs more rear wing, I suppose you might call it, than most. So they, they are a draggier car, and because they're a draggier car, they will give the car behind them a bit more of a toe. Um, so it's all you know against Mercedes, and it's all for Red Bull, but it's not, it's not just as simple as that. I think Red Bull have taken the fact that um, the DRS is part of Formula One, and they have uh, exaggerated its usage. If you look at their beam wing, and I did a feature a few weeks ago, I think it was on beam wings, comparing Ferrari and Mercedes and, and Red Bull. Red Bull run a more aggressive beam wing on their car, a, a more aggressive rear flap on the beam wing, the way they've, and they have done that for two years now. Um, so, you know, that aggressive beam wing um, needs the upper wing to be working just to keep the flow attached on the beam wing. And whenever they open the top, open the top wing up, the beam wing probably stalls, and in turn that will probably stall the floor. So you've got a situation where they're they're doing a drag reduction system on the whole back end of their car. I think Mercedes and quite a few others are just doing a drag reduction on the upper wing because their beam wing is not working hard enough. So it's one of those sort of situations where again, Red Bull have read the regulations, bought into what they can do. And maximized it because there's no point in, in just having a tiny little rear flap that you open up and it gives you a couple of kilometers if you've got an advantage you've got to exploit it to the maximum and that's really what they've done so again it's not red bull's fault that they've got a very efficient drs package um it's you know the rest that's there to be achieved with the rest of them so if the other teams that are complaining about it were to run a a more aggressive beam wing that worked with the floor a bit harder and then the, the uh, upper wing when it's open, that area stalled, they would get the, the speed advantage as well. But I don't think Mercedes are in a position to to really sort of get on top of all that because I don't, you know, their car at the minute and last year, they don't really have a good handle on what's missing. They, they themselves, as you say, they themselves have said they've met their targets. Well, the targets are way out wacky if, they, if they've met their targets and they're doing what they're doing. Targets are a, are a great thing. Um, but the problem is you never know what the targets for other teams are until you, you go racing. They're real. You know, now they're real. The stopwatch is your target. And, uh, you know, it doesn't work at the minute for Mercedes. Um, and it doesn't work for them as far as, you know, the, the DRS package is concerned. They haven't exploited it to the maximum. So I don't think they stand up and complain. They need to look deep at themselves and see if they understand where they could get to um, if they really sort of did change their attitude a little bit. You know, they, they were very successful, you know, from 2013, you know, into 2014 with a hybrid engine and right through to 2019, 2020. You know, they were they were King Kong. Um, but they've been caught now. And, and now it's, you know, it's a different head scratch. You have to use your left hand to scratch your head now as well as your right hand to find a solution to get out of it. And, uh, and you know, at the moment, I'm, I'm waiting to see what they're, new packages whenever it comes if it's Imola or whatever uh, it'd be interesting to see where they where they do buy into it and if Red Bull do put a few stickers on their car <laughs> now breaking down the DRS a little bit if we look purely at the rear wing geometry itself obviously there's a degree to which the way you design that impacts the impact that impacts the effectiveness of the DRS you've got a trade-off how it works with the DRS shut versus open I think it's about 85 millimeters is the maximum gap under the current yeah, yeah, yeah. regulation so how much variation will there be if you disregard the rest of the car in terms of just the geometry of the rear wing and and end plates such as they are and everything and then how much of it is down to the way it works with the rest of it i know it's not quite as modular as that but i, I think it's quite good to sort of break down yeah. what contributes what and how you 
how you might design those trade-offs if you were designing a, a DRS rear wing car? Well, the thing I think you have to start with with the underfloor. Um, you know, you, you get the, the bits around you that make that underfloor work harder, the diffuser work better. Um, if you take the, the, the turning vanes or the little winglets that's on the inside of the brake ducts, you know, they all make up a diffuser across the back of the car. Um, so y- your beam wing, um, as such, is, is a very important part to how the underfloor works. So but we, I think we know that Red Bull definitely have a better understanding of the underfloor than most of the teams um, as to how to make that work well. And I think the reason that it works well is because they, you know, you want as much downforce as you can in medium-speed corners, low-speed and medium-speed corners. But these cars generate so much downforce that if you just allow it to, to, to build up at the square of the speed, which is a normal aerodynamic equation, you end up with just a massive amount of downforce at 320 kilometers an hour, 330 kilometers an hour. And that massive amount of downforce you have to support. So you have to support it with you know, springs that are much stiffer than what you really need. So if you can have a mechanism on the, on the car that allows that downforce not to build up at the square of the speed after a certain point, in other words, whenever the car gets to a certain ride height, although the downforce still increases, it, recre- it increases less, then you don't need the stiffness of that car for the high speed. So you can have a car that's got lots of downforce in the medium speed corners where you, you want it, but it still has lots of downforce in high-speed corners, but not as much as it potentially could have. So then you've got a situation where you can run the car a little bit softer, as I say. It doesn't have to be so stiff. It doesn't have to um, start bouncing on the tires. And, you know, whenever we see porpoising, that's because the underfloor gets too close to the ground and part of it separates and it releases and then it builds up the downforce again, sucks it back down, and then it releases. I think Red Bull are quite good at sort of managing that it doesn't release, it always builds up downforce, it never gets negative, always still positive, but less positive. And you need the beam wing to be doing, to, to be helping that, to be part of that. So that's why they run a very aggressive beam wing, which is quite draggy. The beam wing itself is a quite a draggy component. Um, so then you say, well, okay, that's that's my underfloor, it's very consistent, I can cope with that, but it's, it's quite draggy. But it ends up they can run with less rear wing. They, they usually run a, a lower downforce rear wing assembly, visually. Um, and then you got the DRS. So obviously, you know, if you just were to have a rear wing and open the DRS, you would gain, as I said earlier, maybe 15 kilometers an hour, that sort of thing. Um, plus the fact you get a tow from the car in front of you anyway, because you're you're always behind a car when you can use a DRS. So you get a you get a tow from that. So you're talking 15, 18 k's with a normal DRS system, but because their beam wing is so reliant is, is so aggressive and reliant on the top wing keeping it keeping it working once they open the the the, the top wing to the, the drs you know as they say 85 millimeter slot gap then the flow through there means the beam wing just falls over as well and when the beam wing just falls over the the diffuser falls over and all of those things not only reduce downforce they reduce drag so you get 30 kilometers so as I say, it's the whole back end of the car that DRS can affect. And, and I think Red Bull is the only team that really has got on top of that. I mean, even Aston Martin don't do that. They don't gain that sort of speed. So it is a real finite design element that you need to really get into. And you need to be at a level that Red Bull are probably to, to focus on that and just detail that to the, to the last little bit. And um, 
yeah, it works for them. 33, 34 kilometres an hour quicker than a Mercedes down the straight. With DRS, well, yeah, great. Have, have as much of that as possible. I mean, if it was the other way around and Mercedes were that, we'd just say, oh, dear me, isn't it great they can do that and they've got such a good power unit. I think, you know, now what we're seeing with Red Bull is their engine, their Honda engine and Red Bull Technologies or whatever it's called nowadays, you know, it's as good as anybody in the pit lane. Um, I don't think it's better, but I think it's as good as anybody. I think the way they deploy it is very, very good. But the whole car aerodynamically, to me, is just a different level to the others that we're seeing. I think what you've explained there is the extent to which these cars are almost virtuous circles, aren't they? In that benefits in performance in some area can have a knock-on performance in others. It's just about understanding that whole thing. Such a, a brilliant illustration. And I think given there's so many people saying, oh, how are Red Bull getting this extra straight line speed? It's a great way to show that actually it's not necessarily some magic trick. It's it's just a combination of just understanding at every level. Nothing, you know, nothing on these cars is in isolation. It's a whole package. And, you know, we keep saying about the visual concept of the, the Mercedes against the Ferrari against the Red Bull, which are the three sort of different concepts, I suppose. Um you, you can you can only look at that in isolation, but the, the airflow down the side pods of the of the car, through the side pods of the car, through the radiator ducts, over the side pods of the car, affect the underfloor so dramatically as well that you can't look at it and say, oh, you know, uh, we've got really efficient side pods that flow through into the Coke bottle, fantastic, blah, blah, blah. But you have to use some of that flow to make the underfloor work. And so, as I say, it's nothing in isolation. You can't, there's no magic bullet. It's a whole, it's a whole row of, of, of of bullets that you need to get right and uh, i'm afraid you know i think mercedes have missed quite a few of them well that's something we shall get onto in the next section but certainly a very good foundation in why the red bull is so effective not just in terms of drs there Well, as we discussed, it's very clear that the story of the F1 season is Red Bull having a dominant car in the RB19 with a group playing catch-up behind. We talked about the amazing rise of Aston Martin on our last show. They underlined how strong they are with another third place in Saudi Arabia, albeit after a bit of penalty shenanigans. But let's talk about Ferrari and Mercedes, Gary. So if you're in the position of those teams, you realise there's fundamental things about the car that are delivering what you want them to but it's just not enough. It doesn't have the same performance potential as what Red Bull are doing, and Aston Martin suggests that concept as well, in that they're doing the same sort of thing, but not quite as well as uh, as Red Bull. So what do you do at that point when you realise there's some limitation, some blockage, some aspect that's meaning that although you've done your car concept actually pretty well, it's just not going to be good enough. There's 99% of the performance, say, of, of the way that Red Bull have gone. What do you do then? Well, the difficult thing is, you know, we keep hearing them, they've achieved their targets. Well, obviously their targets are wrong. And, and what are targets? You know, you, you take, if you take last year, for example, the, the teams, they should analyse each other's team. And they've got GPS, they know the speed of the car, the, the braking efficiency of all the cars. You know, you can draw, you could draw a, a typical excellent car from all the information you've got from the fastest in corner entry to the middle to the fastest through mid corner speed to the the fastest exit the fast acceleration and from that all you should be able to predict what you're missing as far as downforce is concerned and if it's just a number if it's just downforce against drag that you've got to do to to achieve that then you'll need x amount of downforce um, and you'll need it free of charge or you'll need to reduce the drag by by x to get the efficiency up um, if we assume that the, all the power units are, you know, within touching distance of each other, I suppose. 
that's okay if you look for that downforce. The biggest problem is looking for that downforce and, and making it happen at the right time. And, and that's where your targets need to be really, really set out. It's not just the number. It's just not the, 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 the headline number of, of downforce. It's about how the car, the transient conditions of the car. Because as I said many times, you, you come down the straight, the one thing you want going down the straight is minimum drag. You don't need lots and lots of downforce but you want minimum drag. So you, the next thing is you either shut the DRS or it's shut anyway because you're not behind another car or it's not in qualifying. Um, so at that point in time, you'll want the car to be stable. You're getting on the brake pedal, you want the car to be stable, you want it to have good grip, you want it to have except, especially good rear grip. So you, the minute you hit the brake pedal, you, the driver gets confidence because that's when he gets his confidence to turn the steering wheel. So if he can hit the brake pedal and he's not sort of tiptoeing because he's waiting on the rear end snapping on him, then he'll turn the steering wheel. And when he turns the steering wheel, he wants the car to turn into the corner. But again, you want the front to turn, but you want the rear to be stable because that means you'll just attack the corner a little bit faster next time. When you get to that point in time, you're coming off the brake pedal. So it's about how far can you drive into the corner on the brake pedal uh, and not have the front lock up on you and the car um, slide wide as such. So you you get to the middle of the corner and then you want to try and get back onto the throttle. You don't want the car to start to understeer, and you don't want the rear to feel nervous. So, you know, you need a car that balances itself all the way through there. And the things you've got changing all the time is the attitude of the car, the roll of the car, the yaw of the car, and the steering angle. All those things are transient. So you've got to set your targets to suit each of those transient conditions that take you through a given corner. Now, you can model one corner. It's easy, 90 degrees. It's different if it's a 180-degree corner, um, you know. So every corner is slightly different, but you can model that one corner. And your target should be the fact that you have a consistent balance. That means the centre of pressure is shifting in the right direction for every every transient condition. And that's part of your target. The target is not just a headline number of downforce for drag. It's not just a headline number of efficiency. Uh, and I'm, I think that's where, if you take... Uh, Mercedes, that's where they've gone. They just look at this headline number and say, oh, look at that, that's fantastic. The, the downforce level we've got uh, is excellent. They themselves will say the drag of the car is a bit high and they will say, again, the rear of the car is a bit nervous. So they're always running a little bit more rear wing, which is not a good thing because the rear wing is one of the of the most inefficient parts of the car. Rear wing is, you know, a decent rear wing is probably three and a half to one efficiency. The underfloor is probably 10 to one efficiency so it's an underfloor you want to work consistently but its characteristics need to be right to give the driver that confidence to arrive at the corner brake late turn the car aggressively and know the car is secure and you know whenever you see one of these cars take a corner well at speed it is phenomenal speed they're going at they're not you know they're by no means slouches they are very very quick and whenever you see one that's not quite balanced you'll see it moving you know you can actually physically see the rear stepping a little bit not the driver feels that's that's a nightmare. You know? So you've got to make sure that your your targets that you're setting are for all of those conditions, and it's not, as I say, just a headline number. Now, obviously, targets are one thing, but you've got to have the wherewithal to actually achieve them. And obviously, there's two things at play here. You've got the F1 regulations as they are. That's one of your limiting factors. And your overall limiting factor that everyone plays to are the laws of physics, because even Adrian Newey has to abide by them. But Let's say you're you're sat there as Mercedes or Ferrari even, but Mercedes perhaps particularly so, and you're thinking, right, we know there's an area here we don't entirely understand. And 
it will be about the fine detail, won't it? The moving around the aerocenter of pressure, there's details of the way you might seal the floor, that kind of thing, the interaction of, of the suspension and the ride of the car with the way the underfloor performs, all of these things. So how much of it will you know what you don't know and therefore know where to look? How much of it will you say, well, there's going to be lots of unknown unknowns, to use that old Donald Rumsfeld quote that you've got to find. So do you think that with their much vaunted change of concept and approach, which we'll start to see coming in, they've already said Imola will have different side pods, which required some repackaging underneath as well, but then they're going to go well beyond that. How much of it do you think is there almost a hit and hope in terms of, right, we know this works better from observation, but we don't actually know why. So do you think they're going into it thinking, right, we're going to have to learn some stuff here, but we we don't really know what we need to learn until we dive into it and start playing around with it? I think they'll they'll have a, a big learning curve because, you know, as I say, I don't I don't believe that they're their target they missed their targets because of potential downforce numbers. They they've missed their targets as potential car characteristics is concerned. And no matter what you've done with the side pods, those car characteristics will still carry through. You know, you still need them to be right, and they've got them wrong at the moment. So what's to, why why should they get them right next week? Because just because they got a different side pod on the car. You know, there's so much more to it. Red Bull are moving forward all the time. They're not standing still. Yes, they've got less wind tunnel time than Mercedes and less wind tunnel time than anybody. But at the end of the day, you know, once you have your, your head set in a direction that you you know you're going in the right direction and you know that you've got confidence in the direction you're going in, then, you, you, you know, you make decisions quicker and easier. You don't need to research all that stuff. I think Red Bull's problem with the, with the wind tunnel time will hit them in a year's time or something. It won't, it won't hit them right now. It'll hit them later on. Um, but will that be a big problem? Because these regulations are going to be stable for quite a few years now, you know, a couple of years. So in, in other words, it's going to be dotting the I's and crossing the T's. There's no major revolution is going to come, I don't think, in, in, in these regulations now. Again, because they are quite controlled. And um, once you've got on top of it, I think you're going to be stuck there. So I think, you know, Mercedes could make exactly the same mistakes uh, as far as the characteristics of the car is concerned if they had, you know, if they put Red Bull side pods on the car because it's not just like that. You know, if you look at the underflow on the Red Bull, um, I haven't seen one in detail lately, but I saw one last year. Um, the, 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 the concept of the Mercedes underfloor and the Red Bull underfloor is as different as the side pods are. And you could, you could, if you wanted to, probably come up with a good, a good story for tying those two together as to why they're different. So, you know, as I say, everything affects everything else, but it's not just change the side pods. It's not just change the bit you, you see. It's getting the whole thing to work as one and getting the car characteristics to suit the driver confidence that you need. Because, you know, as I say, these cars are fast. You know, they are fast. You need the driver confidence to be able to turn the steering wheel. And, you know, we see that with... Alonso and the Aston Martin, he's so happy with that car at the moment as far as its its feedback to the driver is concerned. It's right there. And um, that's what you need. You have to have that part because the driver can bring you more. You know, if you find 20 kilograms of downforce, it's, uh, you know, within half a millimetre ride height of a certain point, And, you know, you're never going to be there, are you? So what's the point in that? You just need to give the driver enough confidence that as the car's moving around and doing all the stuff that I've talked about, that the consistency will be in the car there. It's not just going to understeer like a pig in one corner and then snap oversteer in the next one, which is what we see, I think, from, uh, to some extent, from both the Mercedes and the um, 
and the Ferrari. You know, I think if I looked at Leclerc, one of Leclerc's um, sort of initial first lap qualifying run, and he had lots of understeer in the car. You know, the, the car was just washing away at the front end. You could see lap time was going to come to him, but he just didn't have the front end. So whenever you do get that front end, does that mean the rear gets snappy? That's what you don't want to have. He, you know, if you put a turn of turn of front wing angle on it, and suddenly the car shifts from being a car that's understeering to the, to the rear snapping, that's when the driver's head, he just gets confused because he doesn't know what to do next. It's just, you've got to have that feed-in consistency that the driver, you know, the driver can feel and then he can exploit the car to the maximum. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Let's talk a little bit about Ferrari, because their problem is in very basic terms the same in that their car's not quick enough but their problems seem quite difficult uh, quite different to that of mercedes obviously the mercedes drivers were talking about unstable rear end etc lack of downforce the ferrari they struggle massively with uh, the tire deck they've tried to play this off as oh we're a bit slow so we have to push harder and we work the tires harder but to be honest the drivers have sort of indicated that's not not the not the case. This car fundamentally does work its tyres harder. And as you just pointed out, there's balance problems as well there. Fred Vasseur, the team principal, described it as problems with drivability, which he didn't mean the engine, which is what you'd normally mean by that, but more just the the balance of the car. And he talked about the need to, for starters, get more consistent performance out of this car because it's a little bit erratic. So how would you characterise Ferrari's position and how is their approach to trying to close the gap? And bearing in mind... They were a lot closer. Leclerc was on the front row. Well, qualified on the front row, but then got the penalty. So they're a lot closer. They're about a quarter of a percent off on pure pace, whereas Mercedes are a kind of 0.7% off. So how different is Ferrari's approach? What questions will they be pitching to themselves to answer? Well, I think it's, it's very difficult for them because if you looked at uh, in Saudi Arabia, the, the up to started qualifying they really did look as though they were in trouble um and i think that's you know coming a bit from the fact that they might just have some reliability problems built in there now the problem is that every time you turn anything up on these cars a bit more you need more cooling so i can understand them wanting to keep things turned down a little bit if their cooling isn't as efficient as it should be um but whenever you do turn it up and go into qualifying you have a different car from what you had uh before you know, because you get more power, you rev at the corner a little bit quicker. When you get in the throttle, it's just a little bit more responsive, all that sort of stuff. And that can be good or it can be bad. I think, you know, we need to look at, at, at drivers and say, you know, Max Verstappen is obviously a, a bit exceptional in the fact that relative to his teammate, you know, I know Sergio was on pole and I know that um, he won the race. But at the end of the day, up to that point in time, when the drive shaft broke, Max was, you know, a decent step ahead of, of Sergio as far as performance was concerned. And again, Leclerc seems to have that little bit of an advantage over since the same thing. So I think he's an exceptional driver as well, as far as taking the best out of a car on, on a set of new tyres. You, you, what you need to do is make sure you've got a good balance, because if you haven't got a good balance in the car, and as again, to go back to those transient conditions that I talked about, if you haven't got a good balance through all of that, you will eat the tyres up. At some point in time, you're overloading one end of the car, usually the rear, because that's the one that, you know, 
you can live with a little bit of understeer here and there because you can, you know, you can muscle it. But oversteers are something that, you know, you, you just have to respect it. You just have to back out of it to the level that it's not going to bite you. So, uh, you know, I think that they need to look at the balance of the car and the, and the uh, ability to keep that balance through a corner rather than eat the rear tires up. Because the, the thing is, when you put new tires on, um, the tires, they don't know about being older, new or overheating or losing grip. You know, they, they just work quite well for a lap, two laps at some circuits. They work quite well. So you can exploit it to the maximum. But then come the race, you know, you have to drive within the, the tires. And the tires, if they're deteriorating, say the rears are degrading on you, you have to just back out of it a little bit. That means you go a bit slower. Um, so it's just a circle of events whenever you've got that problem with the car. But it, but it normally comes from the balance not being as good as it should have been. And as I say, whenever I saw Leclerc on that first qualifying lap of his, you know, the, the understeer he had was, was way too much for sure. Um, but he did a second lap and, and, and he went quicker quite easily. And that's normally only because you've lost the grip of the rear tire. You know, the rear tire is now deteriorating a little bit quicker than the front. So the balance becomes better because the rear tire has gone off a little bit. So the driver can drive faster. A lot of cars have that problem. A lot of cars, the second lap is quicker than the first lap. Again, same reasoning because normally if you've got high grip tires or better grip tires, the car will understeer more. And as I say, one lap in the rear, you lost that little bit of bite. The balance becomes better. So the balance is everything. But you take Ferrari, then they go into the race. And that, that balance change of the rear going away just keeps on going. The rear just keeps going away a bit more. Every lap, every lap, every lap, if you're pushing on the limit. So they need to get a better balance on the car, more consistent through the transient stage into the corner and out of the corner. Um, and then I think they can go forward with it. I don't think they need more downforce. I think they've got reasonable grip. But I think they just need to, to be able to have that grip when they need it a bit better. It is interesting, though, because in both cases, it's all pointing to a lot of that fine detail, isn't it? Obviously, when the new regulations came in last year, the cars were cleaned up an awful lot in terms of the top body stuff. So all of these little flicks and barge boards, those incredible works of art or monstrosities, depending on how you want to look at them, are all about trying to get it working well through all those transient conditions. And those have all gone. But it's almost like Red Bull are able to still play tunes with all these little things and they refine their floor fences and everything about the way that underfloor and everything that's connected to it, because that, as you say, the underfloor drives the concept. They just seem to have that fine control that goes above and beyond what everybody else can do. And that, that from the outside, to me, looks almost a bigger problem because if it's just, well, we're basically fine, but we just need to put more downforce on and keep doing what we're doing and we'll get there. But this seems to be such a fundamental thing in terms of that knowledge and understanding. I asked Toto Wolf about this and he said the lag in terms of building up that knowledge will be six to 12 months. But it always feels like that's more than six to 12 months of knowledge that Red Bull's playing with there. This has been coming for years, just that fine control. Yeah, I believe I believe that's right. You know, I think you can just relate it to one thing. You know, the, the, the Mercedes run fairly flat through the last set of regulations, whereas Red Bull and a lot of other teams were able to to run rake in the car, Red Bull more than any. And the only reason about running rake in the car is because obviously the underfloor will leak more is the fact that you sort of have a good grasp on um, the reasons you're doing it. And you have a good grasp on the vortex generation that the bars bores did and how you can seal the floor and when you need to seal the floor, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't forget that, you know, even the regulations, even the regulations change, you don't forget that, that there is something in there. So it's one of those sort of situations, I think, you know, 
six to 12 months is a bit of an understatement. You might get on, latch on to a little bit of it fairly quickly, but it's, it's the whole, you know, it is the whole airflow structure, I suppose you call it, of the whole car. It's not just the bit we see. It's how that bit you see influences the bit you don't see. And that's where I think, you know, I'm not sitting here patting Red Bull on the back because their performance does that for itself. Uh, what I am saying is they seem to have a better handle on it. And the interesting thing that, you know, somebody like Carlos, Carlos Sainz was saying, and a few others, is the fact that these cars are getting worse in traffic. Um, and that's part of the same deal. You know, they're getting worse in traffic because you've got, you know, more outwash happening because there's finding little tweaks here and there to get more outwash around the front tires. Part of the outwash around the rear tires is is very important to making the diffuser work better. Um, so, yeah, all of these things now, as the teams exploit the regulations that little bit here and there, um, will make the cars worse in traffic than they were initially from a you know a fairly rudimentary design that we saw at the beginning of last year. Um, maybe time for the FIA to step in and just do do some small changes and, and simplify some things. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, the regulations are supposed to be stable for a few years, so leave them alone and let them let them do it. That's that's life. Yeah, and it's so difficult, isn't it? Because that whole thing of turbulence, it's an object moving through the air at high speed. So unless you run it in a vacuum, in which case generating downforce is going to be tricky, that's going to happen. So you have to be realistic about what's achievable. And people often want sort of magic solutions, but there isn't really one there. But fundamentally, it's just down to the other teams to do a better job, isn't it? That's what will create improved racing. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on absolutely anything, F1 ancient or modern, just some technical question that you've always wanted to know the answer to, just as long as it fits in with our remit as a tech show. You can send a written email to podcasts at therace.com or if you prefer, record a voice note and send it to us, making sure to let us know who you are that we can then play. We've got two questions this week and the first is from Dustin from New York who says, hello Gary and Ed. Well, hello Dustin, that's a good greeting. My question is about the wind sensitivity of the Williams car. I've heard a lot from this podcast and other F1 media outlets about how sensitive the Williams car is to the wind. It made me wonder what produces that wind sensitivity. Is it the overdevelopment or underdevelopment of aerodynamic parts on the car? Are there mechanical traits of the car that exaggerate this wind sensitivity? And lastly, how do teams engineer their cars so that external factors such as crosswinds do not hurt their performance? Thanks for all the great technical insights. As someone who recently returned to school to study mechanical engineering, I find this podcast fascinating. Well, plenty of you to get into there. Gary, you think about going back to school to study mechanical engineering, or, or do you think you've uh, uh, you've learned on the job for half a century? Um, well, I've learned on the job for a long time, um, but it's it's one of those things you never you never stop learning. I suppose maybe maybe going back to school might be a bit late for me now, but uh, I didn't like it when I was there to begin with, so I'm not going to give it a second run. But Dustin, yeah, thanks for your for your question. Um, so wind sensitivity, there's 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 a few areas. First thing I'll say about the Williams is that they are a, a team that run their car low on downforce, um, low on drag, and they're always fast in a straight line because of that. You know, there's no magic in it. They have a car that's running less downforce than quite a few other cars, and that will always mean it's more a little bit more critical to to um, to cross winds or turbulent turbulent winds, I suppose you might call it. 
someone like Saudi Arabia, because you're driving along between the walls quite a lot through those fast corners, you get quite a lot of turbulence contained within the track. Open circuits, but maybe like Silverstone and stuff, it's not quite so bad. But open circuits like Silverstone, you get crosswind. So the, the two are always there. Um, so taking that really sort of and, and trying to um, look at it from a different direction and saying how can you make the car better uh, in crosswinds or turbulence, you need to make sure that some of the aerodynamic surfaces that are on the car aren't working at you know 101%. Basically, you know if you've got an aerodynamic surface that's really exploited to its maximum, um, then a little bit of turbulence or a little bit of crosswind will mean it falls over. So you'll get a bigger effect on it. So, you know, whenever I was trying to design cars, you'd always try to find out, you know, your front wing angles, where you could get to, and you'd always make sure that your maximum was a couple of degrees less than that because you didn't want to run it into that critical area too much. You'd always try to find out where those things happened at, uh, the right height of the car, to stay away from where there was, where it was becoming critical and you were losing loads of downforce. And the same with the rear wing. So any of those aerodynamic surfaces, as I say, that are exploited to the maximum, a little bit of turbulence or a little bit of crosswind will, will mean they fall over uh, earlier than in other cars. It's easy to say and hard to do because every team wants to get the maximum out of the car they can. Um, but it's still, you know, within your within your vehicle, you've got every team has a car that sits on four tires and the load that's put on those four tires is, is classified as a downforce. And every, every team in the pit lane has maximized that to the best possible level that they can. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, that... Uh, the, the Williams, for example, doesn't have the same downforce as the Red Bull, for example. Um, that doesn't mean they've done wrong. They've just they've just done the best they can within their their set of, their set of environment their their environment to get the best out of it possible. So the Williams may have a a component on the car that's running um, right at a critical level of downforce, um, whereas that same component on the Red Bull isn't running at a critical level of downforce. That Red Bull component might be producing. 10% more downforce, but it just means the geometry of it is such that it's, you know, it's not critical. So at the end of the day, you know, you just got to recognize those parts, find out what's falling over and try and make them a bit more benign. Um, and yeah, just, it's just part of the job, you know, just part of the job, recognizing all these things that are your targets. You know, Williams have always complained about crosswinds being a problem, even in the old regulations. So perhaps they've just got themselves a situation where, you know, they're, they are, they have got some fundamental there that they're not quite understanding. It feels like at the risk of becoming repetitive, it's that fine detail again, isn't it? Yeah. It's being able to push those aero parts harder without getting into trouble. It's interesting because Williams did say they still feel there's some of that in the car. We perhaps haven't seen it so much in the first two race weekends. Like Bahrain, they were quite happy that it wasn't very windy at all for the for the race and for qualifying. And had it been a bit more windy, as it can be in Bahrain, and it had been at times in the test then probably that points finish wouldn't have been possible. So it shows how significant the it is in terms of having that sensitivity because it could make the difference between you potentially being able to score points or being 17th at any given race weekend. Yeah, I mean, it is part of the, it's part of the jigsaw. Um, you know, as I say, it's just, it's just one of those sort of things where you just got to be so careful with every component on the car and just making sure that it's got a little bit of a leeway to to where it falls over, where it, where it just sort of, just can't cope with the flow and uh, every component on the car it's it's all the bits that make it up it's not just one part so it's it's a big task um but i think every team would 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 complain about wind sensitivity and turbulence sensitivity 
you know, some teams complain about it more than others, but I think every team will sort of get to a point where they're all they're all looking for a little bit better. Every driver will be looking for it a little bit better. They will notice things. They, they will just notice stuff. But as I say, whenever you're like Williams and you're running the car a little bit lighter or down for us, to just try to get a better performance out of it because you're able to take the drag off the car and get the straight line speed, um, then you become a little bit more vulnerable. So they're probably the wrong end of the scale. They're they're trying to trim their car so much that they, they end up a bit more critical because of uh, of crosswinds and turbulence. Um, but you know, it's it's part of the it's part of the jigsaw you have to build up. Well, let's move on to our second question now, which is from Doug Harvey, who sends regards from Down Under. Now, this question was sent in after the Bahrain Grand Prix, and what the team concerned has been saying has evolved a little since then, but it still points to an interesting topic, and it's one we've touched on, but there's a specific area I think Gary can get into on this. So Doug says, hi, Gary and Ed. Well, hello again. Just a thought, and I'd love to hear Gary's expert opinion about this point. Do the current Mercedes statements around our design is best because we get these fantastic theoretical numbers in CFD and in the wind tunnel feel a lot like the McLaren era post-2012 of we have the best chassis but the engine we have is letting us down. It feels like the team is not willing to be critical of their achievements even behind closed doors when they're bested on track. So I guess in this question Gary it's more kind of Mercedes attitude and how they're approaching it because it's kind of a mixed bag isn't it of that it's not sort of blind we're doing everything right but does it offer direction so what do you make of all of the stuff they've been saying certainly publicly well you know reading between the lines um i think that the story we're getting through the media obviously um from a race weekend it would be quite different to the fly on the wall in the in the mercedes office on a monday morning after a grand prix so we've got to take everything with a little bit of a pinch of salt the, the big problem is, it was really what I'm saying earlier, is that, you know, if they are meeting their objectives and if they're getting these fantastic numbers in the wind tunnel, then they're looking at something completely wrong. And one of the things I've always said is that there's no team, you know, out there that knows, and no person out there that knows 100% of what makes a racing car go fast. Um, it, they know more than the others. That's, you know, if we take Red Bull at the moment, Red Bull and their design crew know more than than Ferrari or Mercedes do because they just exploited that little bit further. Um, but every day and every way you learn something new and that only happens if you research it and, and understand it in more depth. You know, you, you they need to go back and look at why they've got these fantastic numbers. What are fantastic numbers? You know, it's only relative to other to other another team. That's all the number is. Is just relative to another team. So the stopwatch doesn't tell lies. The stopwatch is the same stopwatch for all the teams. So the stopwatch is your fantastic number. But it's interesting their situation, isn't it? Because they seem to be getting the numbers that they're that they're producing the numbers on track that they're getting in the wind tunnel. But just even fundamentally, the downforce numbers, setting aside all those sensitivity issues, aren't good enough. So it's almost I, I sort of see it as a as a failure to realise how good things need to be. Because like you say, target setting is dictated by two things. It's what you think's possible, but also what you observe is possible. So it's just really interesting what that says about the mindset of the team. Yeah, well it is a bit tricky. As I said, you know, again earlier, you know, the rear wing of the car, for example, is probably a few a good rear wing efficiency on an average circuit of three and a half to one. The efficiency of the downforce ten to one. So why would you end up running theoretically a more visual rear wing, you know, more draggy package to get the downforce because the rear end of the car, you know, it feels nervous. The rear end of the car, the driver hasn't got confidence in it. I mean, that's a fundamental ar- argument about center of pressure shift. You, you know, that that's that shouldn't be. 
So at the end of the day, you know, you, you really want a car that, that if you have more front wing on it, if you can run more front wing angle on a car, you, sh- you should have a car that gives you more downforce. That's the thing about it. If you have to run less front wing and more rear wing because you've got a, a, a nervous rear end in the car, that is just a car that fundamentally has less downforce and a nervous rear end. So it's it's just the targets that you set. The targets are more than just this, as I said earlier, again, this headline number. The headline number is just a number of downforce and a number of drag. Every weekend you go to a race mean, you get questioned, I suppose you might call it, or you, you get your answer. The stopwatch and straight line speed, those two go together. And as I say, if we could now say that the engines are all within touching distance of each other, all you have is a stopwatch and straight line speed. No point in, com- in complaining about the fact that the Red Bull's quicker down the straight than the Mercedes down the straight. That's why the rear wing's adjustable. You know, you can you can you can alter it, put a different level of downforce on the car. You you'll then get to a point where you're as quick down the straight as a Red Bull, and the stopwatch will tell you whether you're faster or not. If you're if you're much slower, so you just have a compromise between those two as far as cornering speeds concerned relative to straight line speeds concerned that's your car compromise that's your car efficiency um uh, and that's as i say every weekend you get that black and white in front of you so it's not it's not difficult to know that you've got a deficit you just need to recognize what that deficit is and how to rectify it and it just seems that mercedes have not really latched onto the fact that the car characteristics is critically important yeah, and that's going to be the big question. They're very, very confident about the much-vaunted new direction, but is it actually going to pay dividends? It's easy to be optimistic before, but the next six months are going to tell us whether they're actually getting anywhere. Well, thanks very much to Dustin and Doug for your questions. If anyone has a question about F1 Tech, please send it through to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at the-race.com. They can be as simple or as complex as you like. Well, thanks, as always, Gary, for sprinkling a little of your vast knowledge on us. We'll be back in two weeks after the Australian Grand Prix with more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.